Now turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We'll continue working our way through the minor prophets in the shortest chapter here in Jonah. And last week, Walter did a great job uh, taking us through Jonah chapter 2 and that song of Jonah, Jonah's psalm from inside the belly of the whale. So many parallels to the other psalms that speak of God's grace and God's mercy in times of distress. And like Jonah, how often do we have to come to the very end of ourselves before we cry out and look toward God, who has always been there, who is always sovereign over our circumstances, but who often has to use difficulty and hardship to get a hold of our hard and stubborn hearts. And as we move into chapter 3 today, we're going to come to what is really kind of the high point of the book in many ways. We have seen God's sovereign grace on display so clearly already. We've seen it as he calls his prophet. We've seen it in the storm. We've seen it as the sailors cast lots. We've seen it as God prepares a fish to rescue his wicked prophet. We see it as God rescues him not only from drowning, but we see God's sovereign grace as he changes Jonah's heart even through the difficulty. We see God's sovereign grace as he has the fish spit Jonah out onto the land. And now chapter 3 is the sovereign grace of God poured out on a wicked and rebellious people. What takes place here in Nineveh is nothing short of a miracle and one of the most remarkable demonstrations of God's grace in all of human history. And today we're going to see what happens when rebels repent. We're going to see the grace of God toward the most undeserving, unlikely people. And we're going to be reminded that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the nations. Not just a God of second chances, uh, but a God of third, fourth, hundredth chances in his grace. So if you're not there already, find your way to Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read the first five verses and set the stage for where we're going today. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we open what is one of the more familiar minor prophets to us. Lord, we know the story of Jonah. We know the story of Nineveh. We know how it begins and we know how it ends. And Lord, we ask today that you would open our eyes, not to a familiar story, but that you would open our eyes to the truth that your word has for us that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we know that only you can open our blind eyes, Uh, that on our own we are so easily distracted, we're so easily led astray. Our, Our hearts are hard, our eyes are dark, but Lord, your spirit brings light and life. Lord, your word is truth. So we ask that you would remove those things that distract us, those things that hinder us from understanding what you would have to say to us today. And Lord, then we pray by your grace and through the power of your spirit that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that you would help us to be a people who do more than simply know true things about you, but because we know you, because we have been transformed and changed by you, that we live differently. God, I pray that our lives are marked by repentance, by a turning from sin, and by a wholehearted pursuit of obedience, and we need your help to do that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Uh, we live in a disposable culture. When things get a little bit damaged, a little bit dirty, a little bit dingy, they get thrown away and replaced with something else. Uh, in times of crisis, you can't always do that. I think back to World War II and how you know the whole country was called to conserve and ration and uh, use everything more than once. And uh, as I was thinking through that, since I do love history, one of the, my favorite stories uh, deals with a, a carrier called the USS Yorktown. Uh, the Yorktown played a, a critical role in uh, several major engagements in the Pacific. But in May of uh, 1943, uh, they were involved in the Battle of the Coral Sea. And the Yorktown was heavily damaged. It barely limped its way back to Hawaii. And by the first estimates, it would take months to make it seaworthy again if it was ever in fighting shape again. But then as they pulled into Pearl Harbor, the U.S. was just receiving uh, some critical intelligence that said that the Japanese Navy was planning a major offensive on the island of Midway. And if they took Midway, they were only a hop away from Hawaii, which made them a severe threat to the Western United States. And Yorktown was needed. And so, uh, Admiral Nimitz said the ship has to be ready to go as soon as possible. When they finally got into Pearl Harbor, initial estimates went from months to maybe in two weeks it could be minimally fighting effective. Nimitz said, you have 48 hours. <laughs> 48 hours later, the Yorktown steamed out of Pearl Harbor. After 24-hour shifts, they'd made the ship ready, recommissioned it, and sent it on its way, and it played a critical role in the U.S. victory of Midway, which turned the tide in the Pacific Theater. An amazing thing, damaged and broken, recommissioned, repaired, and sent out to do effective work again. And in stories like that, they're more than fascinating pieces of history. If you think of them rightly, they're actually demonstrations of God's sovereignty, even over the affairs of nations. I hope as you look at history, that it's more than just names and dates, that as you view history, it's glimpses of God's sovereignty over the nation, and in particular over our nation as we study it. It's why I love our history. But more than that, as we come to Jonah chapter 3, we see God's sovereignty in the recommissioning of a prophet, as it were. Jonah is one of dozens of examples in the Bible of God using the weak, the broken, the sinner, to accomplish his good and perfect will. As we open up chapter 3, the first thing that we're going to see is this gracious warning that God gives to Nineveh and in part to his prophet. And then we're going to see a picture of genuine repentance and what that looks like. So as we come to verse 1, as we begin to look at this gracious warning, I want you to see the second chance that's given. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, I've asked you to be ready to highlight and underline and mark your Bibles in Jonah as we see where God's sovereign grace is on display. And this should be another one of those places where your highlighter or your pen is already out and you've already underlined it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time, and that was a mark of God's sovereignty. That God would call a man to speak his word is gracious and sovereign. That God had already allowed Jonah, remember, God had already allowed Jonah to see what he could do. As he prophesied and said that the northern kingdom would take back territory. We saw that in the book of Kings and that God allowed him to see that happen. Jonah was already used by God and then Jonah was called to do the word of the Lord. It was sovereignty that allowed him to call Jonah to that difficult task. But I think that we see that sovereignty of God made even more clear in this message because this call of God isn't coming to Jonah the new prophet. This call of God isn't coming to Jonah, the established prophet. Uh, This call isn't coming to Jonah, the faithful messenger. This call is coming to Jonah, the rescued rebel. It's coming to a man who still smells like fish. I don't know how long it was between the time of the 
fish, spitting him up on the shore, and God's call coming to Jonah a second time. It might have been a matter of days. It might have been before he was even dry. The point is that God did not have to call Jonah at all. It was merciful for God to send the fish. It was merciful for the fish to spit Jonah onto the land. It would have been an act of mercy and sovereign grace for God to allow Jonah to go home and live his life in obscurity, but at least to live. But God is going to use a broken vessel to accomplish his will. And God is in the business of using the imperfect to accomplish his perfect will. He does it every Sunday. He does it every time he uses me or you uh, because the reality is there are better messengers. There are better preachers. There are better servants. Uh, God, in his power, could accomplish his will strictly through the miraculous movement of his power. And yet he chooses to use you and I. He chooses to use Jonah to accomplish the tasks that he's given us. Does that ever amaze you? Does it ever amaze you that the sovereign God of all of human history has called and gifted and equipped you, not the general you, but the specific you, to do something particular and specific in the local church? It's pretty amazing. And beyond that, now God is going to call Jonah, a man who has proven that he is willing to do just about anything, even die, rather than go and do what God has told him to do. But God in his sovereignty hasn't changed the call. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God didn't change the call. God didn't change the message that he gave to Jonah. See, we might think that if we run, if we hide, that God will somehow change his mind about what he called us to do. Maybe we think that if we rebel, if we kick, if we throw a big enough tantrum, God will discipline us, correct us, and then restore us, and then let us do what we wanted in the first place. Like a parent whose child throws a tantrum and eventually they bribe it back into good behavior by saying they don't really have to do the thing they didn't want to do. God is not that kind of parent. God is going to ensure that his children come to the understanding that they need to and that his will gets done. And God gives Jonah the same difficult task that he did in chapter 1. Nineveh is still a great city. They are still a wicked and rebellious people. And Jonah still knows not only the truth about them, but the truth about God that didn't want to make him go in the first place. But God is not interested in Jonah's comfort. Here's the reality. God is not interested in your comfort or in my comfort. God is interested in the holiness of his people and the accomplishment of his divine will. And God will see his will done. And Jonah goes... That's the great change. Verse 3 doesn't begin with a but, like it did in chapter 1. God tells Jonah to go, call out against that great city, the message that he tells you. And verse 3 now begins with, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And it's still a great city, an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. 
And when it talks about a three days journey in breadth, it doesn't mean that it would take you three days to walk around the walls. The walls themselves weren't that big, but the way that the cities would work is you'd have a fortified section and then the population would spread out. And then in times of distress or attack, they would retreat back within the walls. So this is a huge metropolitan area, a fortified city, a sprawling population in and around it. And Jonah goes to the center of wickedness now with this message from God. And what is that message? It's a serious charge. God is telling Jonah to bring a very serious charge against the city. We remember from chapter 1 that God says uh, their wickedness, their evil had come up before him. And it doesn't mean that he was ignorant of it before. It simply means that the time for God to overlook their sin had passed. And God was going to act in his justice. They're going to be held accountable for their sin. And chapter 3 gives us a little bit more information about the specifics of that message because Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not only has their wickedness come up against God, but God has now set the timetable for their destruction. I don't know how long it took Jonah to get from the shore of the Mediterranean to the gates of Nineveh. Uh, It's more likely weeks than days. It's a long and difficult journey. I don't know what he was thinking that time, at that time, but I know that when he arrived this time, he does what God says to do. He tells Nineveh that in 40 days, they will be overthrown, completely undone. That God in his sovereignty has seen their wickedness and will tolerate it no longer. And we have to understand that even in that message, there's grace. Nineveh did not deserve a warning. God in his sovereign holiness, God in his perfect righteous judgment could have simply wiped Nineveh off the face of the earth. And yet he sends his prophet to tell them what's going to come. I don't know how far he went. I don't know how much he expanded on that message. I don't know how much he told them about the God who was coming in judgment. But what we do see is that in the face of this promise, the people of Nineveh respond. And that brings us to the next part of chapter 3, the closing part, which is this picture of what genuine repentance looks like. We know the story. We know that Nineveh turns because we are so familiar with this, and it doesn't even strike us as much as it should anymore. We still pray for these same types of things, don't we? We still pray that hearts will change. We still pray for revival in our churches and in our nations. We pray that we would see repentance. We pray that we would see change. But I wonder if we even know what we're looking for. Would you and I know what it looked like if revival were to come? What is it that we're asking people to do? What is it that God demanded of Nineveh? Is it just an acknowledgement that he exists? Are we satisfied with people knowing that there's a God and then carrying on with their lives? Are you and I satisfied with the idea that somehow people are okay with the idea of a church? Maybe even that people attend church every now and then, that they sing the right songs, that they clap their hands at the right place, that they leave happy and satisfied on any given Sunday morning? Is that what we're after, and is that enough to call true change and revival and repentance? I don't think it is. And what we see in Jonah chapter 3 is what happens when rebels, people hostile to God and people hostile to the nations, actually have repentance, a genuine heart change. And so as we open up the rest of this, let's look at the second point, which is that genuine repentance. What does genuine repentance look like? Well, the first step in genuine repentance, the first step in this dramatic change is belief. Look at what verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. It has nothing to do with Jonah. 
It is critical that you see that it does not say they believed Jonah. The people of Nineveh believed God. Everything that follows in chapter 3 is a result of that statement right there. There is no change. There is no outward action without this first initial heart response of belief. And that is not just true for Nineveh. That is the consistent beginning of saving faith all the way through the biblical record. Way back in Genesis, God makes remarkable promises to Abraham. Land, seed, blessing, unbelievable things. But what made Abraham acceptable to God? Was it when he left his home? Was it when he did things? Well, no. In Genesis 15, 6, we read, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God makes promises that are unbelievable. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars and like the sand. And Abraham saw none of those things in Genesis 15. But he believed. The belief, the faith that God could do what he said he would do, although he hadn't seen the fruition of that yet, was what God found pleasing the Ninevites hear about the coming wrath of God from the voice of a single prophet who dresses differently than they do, who speaks differently than they do, who potentially still smells like the inside of a fish, a man who by all accounts would have been unimpressive, especially to a city that would have numbered in the thousands, and yet they believe. They hear that in a matter of 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Something an army couldn't do. Something a natural disaster on its own couldn't do. And yet they believe. They believe that God took notice of their sin. They believe that God had the right and the ability to judge them for their sin. And the New Testament gives us the same truth. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That heart belief, that faith that drives confession and repentance. The people of Nineveh don't know everything about God. The people of Nineveh don't have a history of the law or the prophets. They don't have a national history of seeing him work in their midst, but they believe what they've heard. And that belief leads to the second characteristic of genuine repentance, and that's remorse, mourning. It's sadness over sin. Look at the rest of verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Those are all outward actions, but those are very specific responses. They're specific responses of sorrow. They're they're responses of lament. They're what you would do when there was death or when there was great loss. They call for a fast. They go without food. And, And fasting is not a weight loss strategy. Fasting is not a magical way to get God's attention. Fasting is an attention getter for you. Fasting removes the temptation of food and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the fulfilled feeling that it brings. And it forces you to focus on the hunger. And what you're hungry for, fasting, narrows uh, the focus to where it ought to be. They put on sackcloth. Uh, Think of the most uncomfortable, itchy sweater your grandmother ever gave you. 
And think of that over your whole body. Why wear something like that? Because then there's no place you can go. There's no time of day. There's no position that you can sit in where you're suddenly comfortable. It forces you to be uncomfortable. It forces you to concentrate, to think on why it is there's misery. And the word of the Lord goes all the way to the king. We don't read in chapter 3 that Jonah made it to the king, except it simply says word reached the king. In other words, uh, that message of the coming judgment moved a lot faster than Jonah could. And he responds the same way that his people do. He gets up off his throne, and he sits in an ash heap. If you have ever been camping, and you come out uh, the day after the campfire, and you have a kid who's playing in the ashes, you know that that is a special kind of dirty. It, it is difficult to wash off, and it spreads quickly. An ash heap is no place for a king. It is a far step down from a throne to an ash heap. This is an expression of humility, of sorrow. These are expressions of deep sadness. In the book of Esther, when Mordecai hears about the slaughter that is going to come on his people, he does the same thing. He sits in sackcloth. He, put, he puts on sackcloth and he sits in ashes. In Job chapter 2, after he's lost his family and he's lost his health, he sits in the ash heap. See, belief in who God is and what God says at first brings remorse and sorrow. Why? Because when you believe the truth about God, you are forced to come face to face with the truth about sin. It's ugliness. It's filthiness. It's horror and it's consequence. We don't want to do that. We don't want to consider those things because it's uncomfortable, like sackcloth, because it feels dirty, like sitting in ashes. We don't want to face our sin, we don't want to preach through the minor prophets. Why? Because it's all judgment and sin and sorrow. Not enough joy. We don't want to sit around on Good Friday and consider the Savior bloodied and broken and beaten on the cross. We want to get to Sunday and the resurrection and the joy and the celebration, and that is true, and that is good, and that is important, but the resurrection and the restoration is only beautiful. It is only powerful because of the depth of sin. And if you never confront the depth of your sin, you will never see the need for the God to rescue you out of that sin. The people of Nineveh believe what God says. They believe that their sin leads only to judgment, and they sorrow over it. It brings them to the place of mourning over the reality of what their sin and brokenness has done. And the church, in general, will only have an impact as we take sin seriously. Do you want to know why the Western church, by and large, is impotent, powerless to touch, to change, to impact the culture around us? Because we don't actually want to talk about sin. No, our, our actions and our responses, we would rather blame on uh, bad brain chemistry, bad circumstances, bad coworkers, bad politicians, rather than coming face to face with the reality that we have fallen short and offended an almighty God. If this church 
wants to impact our community, then what we need is not better programming, as great as this is. It's not bigger budgets. It's not better pastors. It's a reality of what sin has done to us. Because when we come to that place, then we can tell the world how it is God has restored us to himself. When we are willing to acknowledge the depth of our sin, then we can begin to extol and proclaim the beauty of the Savior who rescued us out of that sin. And when belief and remorse are present, genuine repentance finally displays itself through action. See, because repentance is more than belief. Repentance is more than sorrow. Repentance is a change. It's a change in heart that leads to a change in behavior. Repentance means turning away from something, and it means bring, turning towards some, toward something else. Look at verse 7. And he, that is the king, issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh, saying, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king charges his people with drastic action. He calls them to fast. He calls them to assume this posture of mourning. And he calls on his people to cry out to God. The actions alone aren't going to change it. Accompanying these actions and accompanying this belief is a crying out to God. They believe that God not only is, but that he is over their circumstance. They believe that God has the right to judge. And they believe then, if those things are true, if God is, and if God has the ability and the authority to judge sin, then the only right and rational and reasonable response is to cry out to that God who is sovereign over the situation. And when they do, their cry is very specific. He says uh, they have to recognize that their way is evil. Let them cry out mightily to God. Let them turn from their evil way. They recognize that their way was in fact an evil way. Sin is so deceptive. Sin convinces me that my way is at best good and at worst, neutral. Sin tells me that because I can do something, I am able to do something. And because I'm able to do something, I'm justified in doing that something. And that is true everywhere from the playground to the boardroom. Power tells us that power makes the rules. Whether it's the biggest kid or the most influential seat around the table. That if you can get away with something, that you're justified in getting away with something. And as long as there's no consequence, you're fine to continue doing that. Repentance says that God takes note and cares about sin, whether anyone else sees about it, whether anyone else knows about it, whether anyone else would even consider it sin or not, God knows. And the people of Nineveh recognize that their way is contrary to God. It's sinful. And they're specific about it. So often our repentance falls short because we're not specific about our sins. We can't actually call our sins what they are. They specifically decry the violence that is in their hands. Let them put away the violence that is in their hands. Nineveh and Assyria conquered through power. They conquered through violence. They expanded their territory through terror. And they recognize that that is sinful. And they say, let us put it away from us. And again, that's why the New Testament picks up on this same kind of language. It's why Paul talks about putting off and putting on repentance, dealing rightly with sin, is not just putting away the bad. It's not just the de dedication and the desire to say, I'll stop doing the bad thing. It involves a whole turn 
to pursuing something else, putting off what is bad, what is evil, but putting on what is good and pleasing and righteous, putting off what is sinful and wholeheartedly turning and running toward what God has called us to do. And look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There's no guarantee there in their minds. There's only this faint hope that maybe if they listen, maybe if they turn from their evil, God will turn from his wrath. See, because we know the story, verse 10 doesn't shock us anymore like it should. Because when God saw what they did, not just when God heard their words, but when God saw that their heart led to confession, that their confession led to action, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God does not owe that to these people. Justice still demanded that they pay for their crimes, and yet God relents, he turns In his sovereign grace, he spares a wicked and rebellious people. That is an unimaginably, unthinkably merciful and gracious end to this chapter. But that's not out of character for God, is it? See, because what we also ought to know, as familiar as we are with this story, and what we'll close with, is that this is the God who relents. That's who God is. He is the God who relents concerning disaster. When Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses was receiving the law and Israel forms and begins to worship that golden calf, God in his anger says that he'll destroy them. He'll start over with Moses. And Moses pleads with God. He says, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your covenant promises, turn from this. And God in his mercy relents from the disaster and he spares his people. In 2 Samuel 24, when David numbers the people against what God told him to do when he numbers the people of Israel and Judah and God sends a pestilence to judge that he could have destroyed for the fullness of three days but he doesn't he stops he relents because God is a God who relents and has compassion as we've gone through the minor prophets what have we seen over and over God promising to act in justice and in judgment on the sins of his people but over and over at the conclusion of the book or sprinkled through the book what have we seen that God will spare his people that he will maintain his faithfulness to his every covenant promise that God will redeem and now God has come to Nineveh and that mercy is poured out a place that is so wicked and so violent that any reasonable person would say that they were beyond reach, that they were beyond hope, but God is merciful. But there's a tragic irony in Jonah chapter 3. Nineveh, aliens and strangers to the covenants of God, pagan Gentiles with no history of God's faithful interaction with them as a people, hear the message, hear the warning, and they turn and they repent. Israel, hundreds of years of God's faithful interactions with them as a people. Miraculous occurrences that brought them out of Egypt and brought them into their own land. Warnings in the law, in the prophets, promises of redemption and protection, promises of justice and judgment when they failed. Warning after warning, year after year, 
and Israel will not listen. Pagan Nineveh responds to the grace of God where Israel remains hard-hearted and rebellious. They assume that because they are familiar with God, he will overlook their sin. They assume that because they have the right history, they will remain in his blessing. But God's blessing and his mercy is found through belief and repentance. So what are you and I supposed to do with this 3,000 years later? Well, we too are called to remember, first of all, the grace of God that calls and equips us. What a beautiful thing it is to see that God does not use us because we are good enough, smart enough, trained enough. That you and I get to live in this beautiful Christian tension that we don't have to resolve. That on the one hand, we know that God could use anything and anyone. That God could use a donkey. That the rocks themselves could cry out. That God can use a wayward and reluctant prophet. And that God could use you and I. That none of us are irreplaceable. And yet at the very same time, we know that each one of us are called, gifted, and equipped in an absolutely unique way, placed in a particular time and space to serve the Lord according to his divine purpose. No one is hindering God's plan with their uniqueness. And no one is outside of God's perfect, specific purpose for their life. Don't try to resolve that tension. Live there. It's a beautiful thing. But it does bring us back to the place where we realize that not only are we called to serve, but it's God's grace that equips us to serve. So along with Paul in 1 Corinthians, we can consider our calling. Not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What a precious promise. Nothing to boast in but the power of God. Second thing, it's good for us to remember the grace of God that changes hard hearts because Nineveh is an impossible call. Nineveh is a people beyond reach, but God calls Nineveh to himself. God called Paul breathing out threats and murder against the church to himself. God called you and I, wicked and rebellious, running from him to himself. See, we've, we live in a society in a time and place where miracles sell, they make movies, they sell books, and we forget that the greatest miracle that God accomplishes is one that you and I have the privilege of seeing regularly, and that is that dead hearts are made alive again in Christ that people are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is the greatest demonstration of God's power. And it might not sell books, but it's what fills heaven. And that means that that person that seems beyond reach is not beyond reach because God is in the business of changing hard hearts. That child that you've prayed for, that parent that you've prayed for, that coworker, that neighbor, that person that is so hostile, so hard, so cold to the gospel is not beyond God's reach. They are beyond your reach, but they always have been. Because you and I have never saved anyone. Paul says that it is the gospel that is the power of God to save. 
And God is still in the business of changing the impossibly hard heart. And finally, we need to remember that it's God's grace that gives us the gospel that does change those hard hearts. Maybe you've heard this today in person, online at some point, and you realize that the warning is for you. The message is for you. Like Nineveh, your sin has come before God and he will deal with it. Maybe not today, maybe not in 40 days, but God will deal with your sin. And perhaps for the first time, that terrifies you. I would encourage you to respond the way that Nineveh did, and that is believe. That God is holy and that you are not. That God in his righteousness has the ability and the authority to judge his creation. And that nothing you and I could do could bridge the gap, could satisfy that wrath. But God in his mercy has provided what can. Jesus Christ, the only son of God, lived the perfect life life. He died the death that you and I deserved, and his sacrifice satisfied the righteous wrath of God poured out against sin for all his people across all time. Believe those truths. Mourn over your sin. Confess them to God, and in repentance, turn to him. And through faith and the power of his Spirit, put off your sin and put on obedience. And the same redemption that was there for Nineveh, the same redemption that has been promised across all ages is there for you. You are not too far gone. Your history is not so shocking that God is disgusted by it. God calls the rebel. And for those of us who have responded, God has given you and I that one message, that singular gospel message that continues to save ruined sinners. Let's pray. Lord, what a remarkable chapter. To see that you restore and rescue a wicked people. Lord, may we be overcome by your mercy in our lives. Lord, make us a people who continually repent of our sin, who recognize uh, the ugliness and the rebellion for what it is, who confess it and who continually turn from it, who move toward righteousness through the power of your Spirit and not the power of our own will or our own desire. Lord, we need your help to repent, to turn. But Lord, let us live in light of the joy of the restoration that you've promised. Lord, draw our eyes to heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And Lord, lift our hearts with the reality that you will come again to rescue your people, to call us to you, to be in your presence for all eternity. You are a remarkable God, and we sing your praises. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.